cold as it's been, you know, we're, we're kind of feeling like Christmas sometimes. But uh, as Shelly mentioned, that's not why we're singing Christmas songs, despite the constant threat of snow and the ice that I had to scrape off my car this morning. Uh, we're getting to this portion of the book of Luke as we are walking through uh, Luke's account of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, where we're actually looking at the nativity. It's an interesting uh, thing as Luke, who is a physician who's trained to observe natural phenomena, that's what he does, he includes in his gospel account phenomena that are supernatural. We see this repeatedly. And he starts out with that. We saw in chapter 1, he leads right out of the gate uh, with angelic announcements. doesn't sound like the materialistic uh, observation of, of nature that you might expect from a man of science. But that's where he starts. Because Luke wanted us to know how crucial God intervening in our world is. It's not just you know, this set of beliefs, but he puts it in a historical context and he shows us right out of the, bat, right out of the gate that God is not off in the distance, but he's right in the middle of our things that we're going through. And today, as we get into this chapter 2, uh, so many of us are familiar with this. If you grew up watching the, you know, the Charlie Brown Christmas special on TV, then you know this story. This is when Linus gets up with his security blanket and has this, this wonderful explanation of what Christmas is all about. Uh, what Christmas is all about. And he reads this nativity story, and he says, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Today, as we go through this, hopefully you're asking yourselves some questions. Like, why is Luke putting this in here? If he's writing this gospel account to be able to establish the certainty of what we have been taught. That's why he's writing to, to Theophilus and for the rest of us to be able to delve into wrestling with the faith. To have a reasonable, thought out, verifiable certainty that what we have been taught is worth believing. That's pretty big. So why does Luke include this uh, account of the birth of John the Baptist and now the account of Jesus being born? The other Gospels don't include that. Matthew talks a little bit about it, but he just kind of brushes by it and establishes uh, some, um, some fulfillments of prophecy and moves on. He doesn't include this account, not these details. Mark doesn't even deal with it. He jumps in feet first and he's, he's ready to roll. John goes all the way back to the beginning of creation and establishes who Jesus is as God. But only Luke records these details. The angels and the shepherds. And what Mary ponders and, and treasures. Why? Well, as we go through this today, hopefully we'll be able to understand his point why he's including this. I think one of the dangers that we have so often as we uh, are, are so used to memorizing Scripture and, and uh, sharing memes on Facebook and other social media and preaching through Scriptures, we tend to take it in little bites and we chew and we chew and we chew and we chew. And we miss the overarching theme. And Luke is writing a story with a point and this chapter, this story, is part of, one vignette in 
this bigger story that he is telling us. And I don't want us to get so bogged down in the details and excited about shepherds and angels that we miss his point. So to that end, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would receive all the glory and honor from every part of what we do, from the singing and the playing and, and uh, the sharing together, the, the uh, lifting one another's needs up before you, that all of this would just point our hearts and our minds to you so that both in us, in this room, and in all of heaven who's watching us, that your name would be magnified. Lord, protect, <laughs> protect all of us from the opinions of humans. We don't need to hear my teaching. We need to hear your word. And so, Father, protect me from preaching us out of the gospel and into some inspirational thing. Speak to our hearts as only you can. Father, strip away from us anything that might distract or deceive or discourage. Silence the voice of the enemy. And right now, prepare us to receive your word. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, in keeping with the Christmas spirit, seems like we ought to give something away, right? So what if I told you that, uh, what if I told you that at the end of today's service, I would give $100,000 to every person who graduated from River Valley High School or its predecessors, Three Oaks and, and uh, uh, New Troy, if you graduated from one of those schools, I'm going to give you $100,000. What do you think? Would that be good news? Yeah. How, how many of you would think that's not such great news because you didn't graduate from one of those schools? <laughs> that could be a struggle. So it might be good news, but if you're not one of those special people, then it's not such great news for you. One of the greatest things that makes Jesus good news for us is that he makes salvation available to all people from every background. It doesn't matter if you're among his, his uh, you know, special class of, uh, of Jews who were the chosen people of God. It doesn't matter if you lived all the, the right ways all your days. It doesn't matter if you uh, are from the wrong side of the tracks, whether you're rich or poor or Democrat or Republican uh, you know, native born or an immigrant, none of that matters. Jesus makes salvation available to all of us, to anyone who believes. We see that so clearly in John 3, 16, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son so that anyone, anyone who trusts in him, who believes, doesn't perish anymore, doesn't spend eternity separated from God and spiritually dead, but has spiritual life, eternal life. All right, so how about if I promised to give $100,000 to anyone who hears about this promise and reaches out to me, you know, my uh, cell number's on the back of the program, so you could text me or just comes and asks me. If you hear this promise and you believe this promise, so you reach out and ask me, I'm going to give you hundred grand, and I don't mean the candy bar, cash, cold, hard cash. Good news? Some of you think that's good news? Probably use $100,000. Well, 
probably not such great news because I can promise it all day long, but my wife can tell you I don't have $100,000 to give. Now, you know, my wife works at a bank, so maybe I'd come up with it, right? But I don't have the authority to give away the, the, to give away the money that the bank has. I don't have the power, the money, the resources. So all of my promises end up empty. The promise is invalid. I don't have the means. I don't have the, the authority to keep that promise. An offer is only as good as the person who makes its ability to make it good, to back that up. Here's the very familiar story of Jesus being born. And in this story, Luke wants to make sure that you and I understand and recognize a very particular and important truth. That's our core reality for today. As we go through this and we explore this nativity story, this is the core reality that Luke wants you to grab. He wants me to get a hold of. He wants all of us to understand and rest in. The certainty of the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. Now this is pretty straightforward. But if we miss this, we miss everything. The certainty of the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. Say it with me. The certainty of the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. Jesus was who he is from the very beginning. Jesus has always been God's plan to rescue sinners for his glory. In his account of the nativity, the nativity is the birth, you know, as Jesus is uh, being born, Luke establishes foundational truths about the nature and identity of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. <clears throat> so just put your hand up and Mr. Todd will make sure you've got one. All right, so <clears throat> we've got Bibles here. Need, uh, need some up front here. Okay. Uh, Todd, if you've got any extra, we can use some up here. Um, and if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can read and understand, then by all means, take this home with you. Because you need to have a Bible. You don't need to hear what a preacher has to say so much as you need to hear what the Word of God has to say. So any preacher who claims to tell you something that isn't backed up by the Word of God, let it go. You don't want that. That's poison. In Luke chapter 2, we all know the words. You've heard it. You've seen it. We want to be able to see how he's telling this story and how this works out for us. So... Uh, as we walk through this, we'll see some other uh, passages as well, and they're marked for you in your program, and uh, I may even throw some freebies in here and there. But we're going to take a look at, uh, at Luke. We looked through chapter 1 last week, and in chapter 1, having already said that the reason he is writing this account, in the first four verses, Luke says, I'm writing this account, having already investigated all of this from the beginning. So Luke, you know, Obviously, as somebody who is a critical thinker, wants to be a little analytical about this, he's worked through these eyewitness accounts that people have given to him. You're making gospel claims? Back it up. Prove it to me. As my wife, who was from Missouri when I met her, might have said, show me. i got to know that this is fact, not just you making it up. So Luke verifies this by investigating the claims from eyewitnesses. You and I don't have that opportunity because the eyewitnesses are dead. 
Luke could go back and, go and talk to people who actually walked with Christ. People who experienced these things. To go and find Mary, for example, and say, hey, tell me about this. What happened? To find a leper who was healed and say, were you really you know, ostracized and had leprosy and, and couldn't be around people and then Jesus healed you? To be able to investigate these things for himself and then put together an orderly account to share with this uh, <clears throat> man, Theophilus, who may very well have been uh, part of Caesar's court and been, uh, been converted. Many think he may have been uh, Luke's benefactor and provided the means to be able to do these things. But as he's wrestling with his faith, Luke writes him this book and a companion volume, the book of Acts, so that he and the rest of us could have a firm place to stand, to say, this I know. Nothing can shake me because I've checked it out. And then he goes on to talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth, the priest and his wife, both of Aaron's line, who are uh, receiving this baby. They're too old to have a baby. You know, I just ha had a birthday, so I'm kind of older myself. But these folks are significantly older. It's not like, wow, that's unusual they had a baby. No, this is impossible. It's not even like Tony Randall old to have a baby. You're talking about people who can't. Seven of you know who Tony Randall is. <laughs> Dated pop culture references. <clears throat> so these are folks who cannot have a baby, and God says, not only are you going to have a baby, you're going to have a very special baby. Your baby is going to be the one who comes like Elijah to make way the, the to make uh, ready the way for the Lord, to prepare the hearts of the people to receive God's promised Messiah. Wow, mind-blowing. Then he takes uh, this young woman who's never, uh, never been in a uh, child-producing relationship with a man, and he says, not, not only are you going to have a baby, but you're going to have the Messiah, and you're not going to do this through the natural means. I am going to do this in you. The Holy Spirit of God is going to conceive a child in you. Heavy stuff. John's born, and we get to chapter 2, where the Messiah comes. Now, before we get into this, I want to point out a couple of things. You can mark this down so you know what we're talking about. Luke places the events of his book in their specific historical and geographical context in order to establish the verifiable credibility of his account. Luke places the events of his book in their specific historical and geographical context to establish the verifiable credibility of his account. In other words, as we read this, we'll see right out of the bat, right, right, that's twice I've said that, right off the bat, right out of the gate, I'm working on English, it'll, it'll come eventually. Luke says, here's when this happened, here's uh, why it, it went the way it did, Here's where it happened so that you can go back and check this out for yourselves. This isn't some myth made up. It's, we're not talking about Zeus and Aphrodite and, and the Roman myths and the Greek myths that the folks are used to. Here is actual historical reason for you to believe. Because you remember this. You know when this happened. Your grandfather may have done the same thing and traveled to go be a part of this census. So 
Uh, without further ado, let me read this. <clears throat> In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, as he gives us this account, he gives a, a big, broad geopolitical setting. He gives a specific cultural setting in that you're in Bethlehem because this is the, the city that David, King David, the great king of Israel, came from. And Joseph is of that line. Turns out Mary is also of that line. And they come together for this census. The reason they're having the census is because Caesar Augustus, Augustus was his title really, but Octavian was, uh, was his name, and uh, one, of the, one of the early great Caesars, he's establishing himself and he has this census to be able to tax people because that's what governments do. That's how they pay for the roads. That's how they pay for the armies. And he establishes this concept of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that provides safety and security for the entire civilized world as they would have seen it. To do this, you gotta raise funds. To raise funds, you gotta know who people are and where they are. So he taxes people. They go to the, the home of their family origin, and God uses these secular events, if you will, these mainstream, everyday things, even going so far as to use what every Jew would consider the evil empire, and I'm not talking about the New England Patriots, the, the Roman Empire, to work out what God had already planned from the beginning. Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that Jesus could be the fulfillment that was only possible, the word couldn't spread, the gospel couldn't spread the same way until you had communication, you had transportation, you, had, you, you were able to trans, transfer this information, the good news of Christ, across the realm. Now under Rome, this begins to take place. Under Rome, God brings these people from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Because in Bethlehem, the Messiah would be born. Continue in verse 8. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, in case you're not familiar with Bethlehem, most of us are not. Uh, I've never been there myself. I would love to go. Tiny little place. Bethlehem was where the sheep were raised for Jerusalem. Up on Mount Zion, nearby, you have Jerusalem. And they sacrificed, they were still part of the, the animal sacrificial system that uh, we see in the Old Testament. At the temple, they're sacrificing sheep all the time. This is an ongoing process. And 
So it takes a lot of sheep. In Bethlehem, this is where the flocks, the special temple sheep were being raised. So these shepherds are there in this shepherding town. And uh, while they're out doing their thing, and who knows what shepherd, I don't know, I don't do sheep, right? I do cattle. And so with my cattle, when I'm out tending the cattle, I'm paying attention to the cattle, right? And maybe I'm paying attention to, you know, whatever random thoughts come into my head. I'm, you know, singing songs aloud because nobody can hear me, so I get away with that. The cattle don't judge me. Y'all don't judge me either now, right? So I'm, I'm in taking in nature, hearing the beautiful songs. If they're out there together, they may be singing. We see pictures of cowboys singing in the Old West. Well, old uh, ancient shepherds would do that same thing. Uh, we see David, when, when King David was still a young shepherd, writing songs. A lot of the psalms came out of his musical background. That was not uncommon to pass the time because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have Spotify and they didn't have a, you know, a, a portable device to carry around and listen to music, so they would sing. They would do these things. What they don't do is look around and think, hey, I wonder if an angel's going to come. So out of the blue, then, we see this mind-boggling event. Everything shifts. Everything changes. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Period. Ho-hum. Yep, that's what they do. Just doing their thing. Verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Okay, so try to, try to go back in your mind, right? You're, you're, you're out uh, in the field. You're doing your thing. Maybe it's easier for you to picture yourself mowing the lawn, right? So you're out... Just doing a normal thing. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I don't know how it's the middle of the night, but in the darkness of night, a dude shows up. Hey, dude, how are you? No, no, not like that. An angel of the Lord. Now, there's a reason that angels always lead with, don't be afraid. These are angelic beings created above us. Now, they may appear in human form so that we can see them, but these are spirit beings. When we see them referred to in the Old Testament uh, in Isaiah 6, there's a particular type of angel called seraphs. They're known as burning ones. Their light, which is reflecting the glory of the Lord, burns. So as this angel shows up, the light pierces the darkness and the glory of God shines around them. Not surprisingly, it says, and they were terrified. I jump if I hear a noise when I'm out in the dark, right? I'm, I'm, I'm out in the backyard and a cat moves. Oh, what's going on? All of a sudden, the light you know, fills the place. It feels like close encounters of the third kind, right? You get this big spaceship kind of thing. Not a spaceship, but at least as freaky. Father, protect me from getting too far into details today. Picture where we are. They're terrified. Verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you Good news of great joy. Say that with me. Good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. 
Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ. Your translation, uh, if you are reading from the NIV, the newer edition of that says, He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. They're outside of Bethlehem watching the sheep. Let's go to Bethlehem, let's go into town, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. I have a feeling the conversation wasn't nearly as calm as I just read it to you. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about their child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So, as we look at this, we see these uh, events. He's, He's very specific. Luke is very specific here. We see this throughout his gospel. It's a, it's a, a pattern, a theme. He continues to, even as he moves quickly, even if he doesn't uh, spend a lot of time on a particular story, he gives details to emphasize the fact that this really actually happened. There's more that we see from Luke. Not only does he place the events in their context, Luke utilizes paired contrasts to display the comprehensive nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke uses paired contrasts to display the comprehensive nature of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's literally what gospel means. That's why I want to make sure we always understand that when we talk about the gospel, we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the gospels. They're uh, traditionally called gospels and In the writing of them, these apostles who write them are called evangelists, those messengers, that's what evangelist means basically. And so um, as they write these stories, they're telling us the good news. Here in Luke's nativity scene, he wants us to be able to see in the contrasts that he shares that This is a big deal. And when I say big, I mean broad and deep. It's everything. It's all of life. It's all of the cosmos, spiritual and physical. And we see these in the contrast. Let's take a look at a few of them. So um, looking at verse 8, we see shepherds living out in the fields, right? Common guys, dirty working guys, you know, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way, but if you're working, you get dirty, right? How many of you guys work with your hands? Anybody? Anybody 
you know, we got farmers, we got folks who have done maintenance work. If you are a blue collar worker, you work in a factory, you work in a shop, you know, at the end of the day, you're a little dirty and gritty and sweaty. That's these guys. Regular Joes, so to speak. But they're set in contrast with a glowing spiritual being, an angel. Angels and shepherds. That's not an accident. God makes this happen and causes Luke to record it so that we can see from the most common to the highest heavens, the good news is part of all of this. It's being delivered spiritually from heaven to guys with sheep. Blue jean guys. It's comprehensive. Let's keep going. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're in the darkness. Now the glory of the light shines, or the glory of the Lord shines around them. There's a contrast here between the darkness and the light. The angel says to them, Don't be afraid. I have good news. They're terrified, but they receive good news. This good news is of great joy for all the people because today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you. They don't know it yet. Hopefully we know it now. The contrast between the Savior and those who need saving is central to this. The angels are delivering a message. The angels don't need saving. They're, they're sinless. But they're delivering a message to people who might think their life is good, but they're lost. Not just because they're the outcasts of society. Shepherds were looked down upon by high-class people. People like to think of themselves as high-class. I don't think that's very high-class myself. But, but shepherds were looked down upon by, by more well-to-do, more affluent folks. All of us are sinners. They may have had the stink of sheep, but my soul had the, the stench of sin. And these angelic beings come to be able to give this good news of a Savior to those who need saving. This is comprehensive. The Savior's been born to you. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. Here's the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Now, that verse alone has a pretty significant contrast. Being wrapped in cloths, or what we traditionally would call swaddling clothes, is the most normal thing in the world. That's how they would handle a baby. Any human baby at that time would have been wrapped as tightly as they could in these swaddling clothes. But it's very unusual for a baby to be laid in a cow feeder. That's weird. So we have a contrast between the normal and, if you will, the weird. To show that Jesus is a baby, like any other baby, but he's in a cow feeder because he's not like any other baby. He's a king. What does the angel say? He's Christ, the Lord. Now, maybe we immediately hear Lord and we think you know, spiritual thoughts, but... He's a Lord like royalty, like a master, in fact, the master. So he's a king, and yet he's being born not in a palace, but in a stable. The contrast shows us how comprehensive this message is. Suddenly, we go from one angel to a, 
whole company of heavenly host. Now I don't know if they're up in the sky like they show them in the, in the uh, kids' movies and stuff like that, or if they're standing around this pasture, but one way or another, the entire area is filled up with those who serve God directly face to face. And the whole night sky and the whole area is all lit up like a runway. And as we go from one to many, they're all praising God and they're saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, on, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Again, God has even in the angels' song, in the angels' praises here, this great contrast. Glory to God in the highest, yet on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests comprehensive when the angels had left them and gone to the heaven the, into heaven the shepherds said to one another let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has told us about so they hurried off and as they go and they see this and they tell people there's a response it's a beautiful beautiful thing they respond to the truth that they received they tell people about it people are amazed there's a contrast between the shepherds and the people who are blown away by all this, and Mary. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always wrestled with this. What does it mean that Mary pondered these things? That she treasured these things? And maybe you didn't ask, I didn't ask for a long time, why the but? Why but Mary? Why not and Mary? Why not, you know, they were amazed, and Mary was amazed, so she ponders this and treasures it in her, in her heart. Why, why this particular conjunction of opposition or apposition? Because Mary has spent nine months getting ready for this moment, not just to have a baby, but because the angel told her before conception that she was going to have the Messiah, She's been waiting her whole life for Messiah. Her family's been waiting for generations for Messiah. Her nation has been waiting since the promise of God for the anointed one, the Christ, to come. Do you think she didn't spend nine months searching the scriptures and talking to every priest and prophet she could find? This girl was ready. So they're blown away. They saw an angel. <laughs> Mary's like, been there, done that, I had one visit me face to face, personally. Gabriel, it was awesome. And he told me I was going to have the Messiah. I don't want to say that Mary was not amazed. I don't, I don't think that's his point at all. I, I don't think you ever get used to seeing angels. I don't think you ever get used to the miraculous. When God shows up, it's always awesome. But there's a calmness to this. They're amazed and what the shepherd said, I think as we look at this, the, the connotation here is that they thought the shepherds were crazy. They were amazed. They were like, shepherds, you're talking about angels and the Messiah being born in a stable. I don't believe you. I think that's the kind of amazed we're talking about. Maybe you've tried to share your faith with people before and they said, Okay, thanks, that's good for you. Leave me alone. Right? 
They were amazed, <laughs> but it wasn't a positive kind of amazement. I think that's what we're looking at here. The shepherds were impacted. The people were amazed, but they weren't changed. They didn't necessarily respond positively. But Mary, but Mary, her heart was ready. She's amazed in a positive way. Angels, shepherds, a census, a stable. I think by this time probably none of it was going to, to rock her. Because God had already made a promise and she trusted him. And now, all this stuff working together, awesome. I get it. Let me think about it. I'm going to treasure it. I'm going to hold this in my heart. Again, I think that's, in many ways, the most normal thing in the world for a mom. Don't, don't you moms do that? I'm a dad, and I do it some. I think moms do it more. When you're rocking your little baby, you just think about them, right? You just gaze into their little face, and you ponder, what could they be? What, what are they going to be like when they get older? And then they start getting older, like, oh my gosh, my baby's growing up. Right? And you think, wow, how can I be so blessed? What is God doing in this child and in my life? I think that's where Mary is. Not abnormal at all for a mom to do that. But not in any way bewildered or doubting. Unlike the people the shepherds tell who are amazed and bewildered and y'all a bit touched, right? Mary says, all right, God, let's do this. Show me what you're going to do in this child. How am I holding my own Savior in my arms? It is rather astonishing to think about and yet as she thought, she embraced it. So Luke places the events of the book in historical context. He, he pairs these contrasts to be able to, to show how comprehensive this is, how big, how all-encompassing. And yet he also pairs contrasts, he utilizes paired contrasts to, dis, to uh, demonstrate that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Luke also uses contrast to demonstrate that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. I apologize for the typos. Hopefully that doesn't keep you from getting a hold of the truth. Here's the thing. As we look at this, showing that he is this baby in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, you know, not, if they didn't, if he looked different, okay, so let's say, you know, you see the pictures uh, and the nativity scenes, and they show the little halo, right? And the Christ child is glowing, and Mary is glowing, and there's sort of this aura, and, and you know, the shepherds walk up. Every, every special I ever saw as a kid, you know, the, the donkeys walk up, and the cows walk up, and, and nobody disrupts. You know, I, I, if you've ever had animals come up to you that are tame, they do weird things like lick you and rub their noses on you and get all their cow snot on you and stuff like that. That doesn't ever happen in the specials. I don't know how it happened in real life. But if it were as unique and strange as that, you show up, you're walking through town, you, you go by a stable, and there's this glow coming out of there. Oh, 
and, and here's a, a young woman and her husband and her little baby, and they're just like, they look like that, that commercial with the uh, gas card that you get it and you turn gold and you start glowing. If they looked like that, I don't think they would need a sign to figure out who it was. But the angels are saying, look, when you go into town, you're going to find a baby. And the way you're going to know it's the right baby is because this baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes like everybody else, looking like everybody else, is in a cow feeder. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, who is Lord, is in a cow feeder. That's your sign. This contrast, the divine and the mundane, the simple human baby, yet Christ the Lord. Luke is establishing in the very beginning of his book that Jesus is fully God and fully human. This is pretty important because he is fully God and fully man. Jesus is able to save from sin. We'll pick this up a little bit as we go, but that, that's such a huge thing. If he's, if he's one or the other, then everything else we see in Scripture doesn't work. If he's not human, he can't pay the price that a human owes. And yet if he's not God, then he's going to have his own sin that he has to deal with, and then that price is only being paid for himself, not for others. But because he's fully God and fully man, Jesus, unlike myself in that earlier illustration, is able to back up the promise. He's able to do what he says because he is who he says. All right, so here's, here's our important thing, our core reality, that the certainty of the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. We've walked through this, and we, I wanted you to see these contrasts and, and to see this, the context, because Luke uses these details to make sure that we get it. Just like he said in, in 1.4, this is so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught. So he gives these details, and we've got to understand how he's going about this to establish it. But here's the point. As we go now, we will work through this little short outline. Jesus is exactly who we need for God to be able to do what God had always planned to do. When we see this, we're going to see a few things. First, we see that Jesus is always God. He was always God from the beginning. Many have said Jesus was a great teacher. Hmm. He was a great prophet. He was like God. He was perhaps a God. The Mormons would say that. He was the Son of God, but He wasn't God. He wasn't equal to God. You have to really do some scripture twisting to get around it. Jesus is Lord. Not is going to be Lord. Notice this. Verses 10 and 11. 
The angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, this day, right now, historical context, in the town of David, cultural context, biblical context, this is the, the promised one to come, fulfilling the promise to David. Today a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. It doesn't say one who will become your Savior is born to you. A baby is born who sometime down the road will do these awesome things and will become heroic. He will achieve a certain enlightenment when he experiences the fullness of his teaching and has his, his, uh, his essence show up in this. It doesn't say this baby will be a great example for you, so if you can be like him and live out these principles, then you can also be enlightened and become like God or become a God. That's not what it says. Baby born, already done. This baby is the Savior. That's significant, particularly to a Jew, because God has said repeatedly in uh, in the Old Testament, that he was the Savior. I, the Lord, am Israel's Savior, her only Savior, her only Redeemer. I am no other. There is no one else. But I will send my Messiah. And all the prophecies point to a Messiah who is, in fact, God in the flesh. The angel says, baby's been born. This baby is the Savior. Not only is the Savior, specifies this baby is the Messiah, is the Christ. Christ is the Greek uh, form of the Jewish word. The Jewish word Messiah, Mashiach, is the anointed one. Christ is the same thing. The anointed one. So, in case you were wondering, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. That's who he is. Like, if you were to say, you know, Jesus, son of Jonah or Jesus, uh, Prince of Wales, Jesus, King of everything. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the anointed one. And the angel says, right now, at birth, is Lord. He is Christ, the Lord. Jesus is always God. Just in case you think I'm making too much of this, turn to the right just a little bit. We're going to go to the book of John. We'll come back to Luke. but John chapter 1. It's the very next book after Luke. John, another evangelist, is writing his account. Different perspectives, same Jesus, same good news, but he's looking at it from a different vantage point. John starts this way. Verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The logos in the Greek. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now pause for just a moment. If you're not already getting a very clear picture of this word actually being God, he says it, is with God, is God, and just so you don't miss it, all of creation created by this one who is the word. 
In him was life, in verse 4. And that life was the light of men. In him was life. That life was the light of men. The light, the life, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He has a little parenthetical here, talking about the same guy that Luke talks about in chapter 1. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. John the baptizer, not John that's writing the book. Different guy. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him, through, uh, through him all men might believe in that light. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. The Word was with God, was God, created the universe, also has in Him the life, which is the light of men. Now we see that the light, the true light, is coming into the world. Verse 10, He was in the world, though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, and his identity is really the connotation there of name. He gave the right to become children of God. Children born, <clears throat> excuse me, children born not of natural descent, not of human decision, not of a husband's will, but born of God. The word, in case you still hadn't picked this up yet, he's making this really clear for us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus was always God. If you look through the, the prophets, and, and particularly in Isaiah, you see in chapter 44, you see in uh, a number of different places that God portrays himself, maybe, maybe portrays the wrong word, he declares himself the only Savior and Redeemer of Israel. God makes it very clear, this is really the point that he's tried to make since Genesis, there is only one God, it's me. There is no one else. And yet we cannot escape the fact that Jesus is always described in the same terms that God describes himself in throughout the Old Testament. Jesus was always God. He was always, always God. He's always God's plan. In case we thought this was just something that happened, you know, sin happened, things broke, and you know, now God's got to come up with a plan. Let's, just, let's try the law. We'll see if we give, if we call Israel, we'll have a special people. They'll be able to keep the law. We'll give them the law so that they can be saved and maybe they can bring in others too. Yeah, but you know what? They're blowing it. They're not really keeping the law. They're not doing the sacrifices right. I better come up with another plan. Let me shake them up a little bit, see if we can get their attention. Uh, still not working. Hmm, now what am I going to do? I guess I'll, I'll hold off for a little while. Then I'll send this baby uh, and the angels will announce, that's not at all what happened. There has always been a plan. How much of a plan? Well, let's go back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 3. You, you can turn there, you can not turn there. All the way back to Genesis 3. 
when sin enters. I changed my mind. Let's all turn there so we can see it together. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so it's easy for you to find. I thought I'd save time, but I decided, why? What else are you going to do today? Some preachers are smart, Alex. Genesis 1, we see the creation of the cosmos. Genesis 2, we see the details as uh, God kind of you know, pans out. So pans out to see the cosmos created, pans in, gets this little zoom lens so we can see, okay, here's the details of, of uh, humanity being created. Now, in chapter 3, everything's cool. Better than cool. Everything's perfect. Everything is fantastic because God is interacting with human beings without a mediary, without an intermediary, without anybody having to, uh, to bridge the gap because there's no sin. There's nothing wrong. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's no humiliation. There's no mean people. There's no uh, hardship. There's no poverty, no sickness, no disease, no cancer, no death, none of that. There's not even frost on your car. Perfect. So much so that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. In other words, it's not that they don't know they're naked. They don't care. It doesn't matter. It's like perfectly innocent little children who run around in the buff and they don't think about it. It's not a big deal. That level of innocence in the world. Can you picture that? Can you imagine it? I can't picture that. My mind doesn't get that that well. But then stuff goes wrong. You know the story. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the, to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? No. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat, from the tree, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. No, that's not what he said. He didn't say don't touch it. So she started to add a little bit. We do that, don't we? We take God's word and then we add legalistic things. You know, so God says be morally pure and we say, well, then that means that you can't dance. You, know, you can't listen to rock music. You've got to be like Footloose before Kevin Bacon showed up. You've got to be all you know, oppressed. Footloose, again, dated pop references, right? <laughs> so um, she starts to twist it. Satan takes her way too far. She thinks she's coming back and being conservative, but she's still being legalistic and adding to God's word. You won't surely die, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Always been the temptation that we could be our own gods, that we could be the masters of our own life. We'll be equal to God. We're still trying to do that same doggone thing today. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the, fruit of the tree, <clears throat> that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. Huh, seems like God told the truth. They sewed fig leaves together to try and make coverings for themselves. So what happens now is after, after the serpent twists it, and Eve gets it a little bit sideways. Then the serpent goes overboard. Come on. 
It's not just that God's harsh. It's that he's trying to keep the good stuff for himself. He wants to keep you down. God's just the man trying to keep you down. And you can be like him. So Eve and Adam, Adam's the one responsible for it here, begin to lean on their own understanding rather than trusting God's word. Without going too much into that, man, that's what gets us in trouble all the time. We lean on what we get rather than trusting that God gets it all. So they sin that God uh, brings the, the curse upon them. They, um, they try to cover up. You think fig leaves are going to keep you from being noticed by God? Pretty sure it created the universe. You can see through your fig leaves. They show up. They blame each other. Adam's like, but, but, but she did it. The woman you made. So really he's blaming God, right? The woman you made, she's the one that made me eat. And she's like, well, it's the serpent. And God's like, you're all crazy. Why do you, you keep blaming each other? You're all guilty. So verse 13. Uh, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, notice this is where the curse begins to come in. All of creation begins to fall apart because sin enters the system. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust for all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now understand, he's not talking about snakes in general. He's talking about the great snake, the great serpent, the devil. Now, here's the, here's the crux of it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. 315. From the very beginning, God introduces the promise of the serpent crusher. One who would be born of woman would do battle with the serpent on God's behalf, and while the serpent may strike his heel, he would crush the serpent's head. This Jesus coming in Luke chapter 2 was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. He has always been God's plan. Always. So much more for us to look at. For the sake of time, we're going to press on. He's always God. He's always God's plan. Notice he was always God's plan to rescue. What does the angel say? Today, in the town of David, a what? A Savior is born. What is a Savior? A Savior is one who saves. A rescuer. A rescuer is born. A hero. A champion who will come and save you from everything that you've needed saving from. That was the promise of Messiah. They had very specific understandings about what that would be and they missed the boat on some of it much of it will still be fulfilled uh, in the end times but now they didn't understand that they were enslaved by sin much more than they were by the Romans but Jesus was always God's plan to rescue I will redeem I will save you he says over and over. It was always God's plan to rescue. I'm going to 
jump ahead to the next point and we'll take the, these two together. He was always God's plan to save his people, to redeem them, but he was always God's plan to rescue sinners. He was always God's plan to rescue sinners. Notice what the angel says in verse 10. Oops, I'm still in Genesis. Hopefully you're smarter than I am. Luke 2, verse 10. The angel says, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all Israel. Did I get that right? Let me try again. I bring you good news of great joy for all who keep my commandments. No? Okay, one more. I bring you good news of great joy for all who will sincerely work to be good people. Nope. You see, if the promise was only for a hundred grand to those who graduated from River Valley and its, and its predecessors, then it's only good news for some of the people. But God is saying, I am bringing good news of great joy for all the people because he sent Jesus to save sinners. Not people who earned it, not people who were good enough, not people who were of the inner circle from the right side of the tracks, not only Cubs fans, but Sox fans too. It's for all people. That was just for you, Tom, just to make sure you're paying attention. The reality of it is that God's plan was always to rescue, and it was to rescue sinners. That's actually going to be a theme for what we see throughout the book of Luke. Luke recognizes, perhaps, perhaps it's more powerful to him, perhaps it's just that God inspired it, him to write it this way. But he emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the Savior to the outcasts more than any other gospel writer. The theme verse is Luke 19.10, when Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And over and over again, we see this picture of Jesus coming to shepherds who are outcast, to an unwed mother. Well, that had to be hard in ancient Israel to explain. Yeah, it's, it's not really what you think. It's God's baby. Sure it is, Mary. We believe you. Jesus comes to the outcast. In fact, when he says that in Luke 19, he's talking about Zacchaeus, who was hated by everybody. Because he was cheating people, stealing money. You want to make somebody mad? Take their money, right? So he's been cheating people. He's, uh, he's not loyal to Rome. He's not loyal to Israel. He's just, a, just kind of a sketchy dude all around. And he turns to Jesus. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Because I didn't come for all you good folks. I didn't come just for the people that keep the law. I didn't come for, for everybody who looks the part and wears a, a nice tie to church and, and you know, listens to the right radio stations and, and does all the right things. I came to those who are in need, to those who are hungry both physically and spiritually, for those who recognize that I am spiritually bankrupt and somebody's got to cover me came to seek and to save 
Those were lost. Jesus was always God's plan to save sinners. Let's look at the book of John again. This time we're going to look at chapter 3. You'll be familiar with at least part of it. We're going to start with John 3.16, and we'll read the few verses after that. What a beautiful, beautiful verse for us to keep in our minds. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We all love that. That's great. This next verse shows that this was always God's plan to save, to rescue, and specifically to rescue sinners. Here's what he says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. But don't miss the next part. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Good news! But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If you're not 100% convinced that Jesus is your hope for salvation, for a, a rescuing, that you were created for a relationship with God and separated from Him by your sin, and Jesus is the only answer. If, if you're not there, according to this, you're part of the world, the everyone, who's already condemned. Jesus doesn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. How do I know this? I was there too. We all were. We start out default mode, not Depeche mode, default mode, <laughs> condemned, separated from God. We're saved by believing. He was always God's plan to rescue sinners. He was always God. If he wasn't, none of this matters. He was always God's plan. It wasn't an accident. God knew from the beginning that the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher, would be sent, would be God in the flesh to defeat the devil completely. Crushed. He was always God's plan to rescue because that's God's heart. God seeks those who are hurting. He wants to redeem. He's in the business of restoring all things. Genesis 3, everything falls apart with sin. And all the rest of human history, all the rest of Scripture, going even into the history not yet written in the book of Revelation and that which is to come, God is in the process, in the business of restoring and redeeming this fallen planet to a state of perfection and perfect relationship with Him. That's always been His plan. And by this plan, for all people, not just certain people, not just people who, you know, yeah, they're sinners, but they didn't do this. No, no, no. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you're from or what you're like or, or what your personality is or whether you're poor or rich or how bad your past is. He's for you. And here's a key point. There's always God's plan to rescue sinners 
for his glory. Jesus has always been, from the beginning, God's plan to rescue sinners for his own glory. This is powerfully important. Oh man, there's so much I want to read to you here. Let's just turn to Isaiah. Uh, let's turn to John chapter 12 instead, since we're close to there. I'm trying to skip some of these that I, I would encourage you to look these up, but uh, for the sake of time, let's just look at some of these. John chapter 12. This is Jesus speaking. When you get to John chapter 12, uh, take a look. We'll start with verse um, 27. Yeah, 27 to 33. Jesus, as he's praying and, and predicting his own death, is hurting here. He says, now my heart is troubled. It's burdened. It's overwhelmed. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He knows that he's about to, to uh, be betrayed. No, he says, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus knows that he was always the plan to rescue sinners with his own death. But notice why. It was for this very reason I came to this hour, Father, Glorify your name. Christ's death, his saving of sinners, was for the purpose of God's glory. Lord, take my life because that's what it's called for. I came for this hour. I hate it. I don't want it. But this is why I'm here. Glorify your name through it. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus did this for the purpose of God's glory. Turn to Isaiah 43. Middle of your Bible, you probably are going to end up in the Psalms there. <clears throat> then start going to the right, past Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Isaiah is the next big one in there. Isaiah 43. God has sent Isaiah to prophesy to the people of Israel and to give them um, their message of condemnation and judgment, and yet also to give them the message of hope that the Messiah would be coming. And here in 43, verse 25, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions I would underline this next portion. 
and he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God does this for his own glory. In fact, if you jump ahead to chapter 44, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And will take the name of Israel. This is for God's glory. He's lifting this up. He's lifting them up so that he would be lifted up. This is what the Lord says, verse 6. Israel's king and redeemer. By the way, notice Jesus is called the king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Do not not proclaim this and foretell it long ago. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. He goes on to talk about the differences between himself and idols. But the emphasis throughout this is the, the supremacy, the greatness of God and that this is all for his glory. When the psalmist in Psalm 25 cries out for God to forgive him, he appeals to God's glory. For the sake of your name, for your glory, blot out my transgressions, forgive my sins. So then, when we get down to it, the reason he's establishing this in the Nativity is because... Everything in the gospel, the certainty of it, hinges on who Jesus is. So why does it matter? It matters because if Jesus isn't both God and man, then he isn't the pro- if he isn't the promised Messiah, then he can't keep the promise of salvation that the gospel makes. If he didn't come to save us, then our hope in him is foolish. If he came only to save insiders, those of a particular background or those who were worthy of him, then the rest of us have no hope. If he came for his own purposes, then he's not from God, but instead is a liar and is God's enemy, since everything exists for God's glory. Notice this. Anything that isn't for God's glory is by definition sin, and a sinner can't pay for anyone else's sins. They have to pay for their own. The certainty of the gospel hinges on who Jesus is. So what difference does this make? If, it, if, if this is true, what difference does it make in my daily walk, in my everyday existence? Well, there are two big things that we can see that really matter. If I know that Jesus has always been and is always God's plan to rescue sinners for his glory, if that's true, that Jesus has always been God's plan to rescue sinners for his own glory, then first off, I have a valid reason to hope, I have a valid reason to believe that I can be saved by trusting in Him, no matter who I am or what I've done. If that's the case, if that's 
always been God's plan, and it's always been to reach sinners, to reach outsiders, to bring them to himself for his own sake, then I have a reason for my hope of salvation. Secondly, if this is true, then I can boldly trust that the God who has planned this out for me, who has personally reached into my world, who has faced what I have faced and has overcome it on my behalf, this God can handle whatever I face now. My problems, my sins, my doubts, my fears, they're not too big for Him. I don't have to live in fear of messing up or trying to be good enough because Jesus already took my place and gives me my identity as God's child. I would encourage you, as you go through your week, to keep these things in mind. He wants us to be certain. Being certain gives us a reason for hope. Being certain gives us a reason for bold confidence, even when we have doubts and fears and worries and stresses, even when we blow it, even when we don't live up to the standard and we're not good enough. If this Messiah that we see here in scriptures is this. And Luke makes a really strong case just in this simple narrative. Then I can walk confidently. And I don't have to be afraid. Let's pray as we wrap this up. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus the Messiah who was and is and will ever be Lord of everything, the master of all creation. Lord, we thank and praise you for what we know is yet to come in the story. And I pray that you would fire up our hearts to, to give us a hunger to know more of what Luke is recording for us so that we can know the certainty of the salvation that is offered in Christ. That we can have no doubt and that we can lean into it and hang on to Him as our only parachute. That we could have this life. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. As we close this, let us worship Him with our hearts and with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.